Sometimes people say, I guess I'm a perfectionist. And sometimes their tone is apologetic, and sometimes it's prideful, but sometimes it's a mixture of both. It's an odd relationship they share with this very common psychological characteristic. More than just being competitive or wanting excellence, perfectionism is the unrelenting feeling of never being good enough. Sadly, the effects of perfectionism do not improve with age or maturity. Sorry, that's the bad news. Researcher Martin Smith showed that people who scored high in perfectionism categories became more prone to negative emotions like anger, anxiety, irritability as they grew older. They're basically the stay-off-my-lawn people. Surprisingly, they also became less conscientious over time. Clearly, something has gone or is going terribly wrong with our world. As Richard Winter writes of this looming cultural crisis in Perfecting Ourselves to Death, These seductive sirens of the advertising in Hollywood cultures that surround us stimulate our partially conscious fantasies and dreams of perfecting ourselves. They increase our dissatisfaction and discontent with who we are and what we possess. Advances in technology have only enhanced their power and influence, and it is complicated by the fact that the dangerous influences in the pursuit of perfection are entwined with many good fruits. But there's more to it than that. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Here in Jesus' words, we arrive at the real problem of perfectionism. Mistakes and underperformance on the job or on the athletic field or in school can perhaps be shrugged off with a reminder, well, you know, nobody's perfect. And yet earlier in the same chapter, Jesus raised the stakes of kingdom living impossibly high for his audience when he pronounced, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5 verse 20. Okay, is there any hope for the rest of us? Is the call to holiness just a religious guise for the pressures of being perfect? Perfectionism. The call to holiness in many ways is actually the opposite of perfectionism. Kevin Lehman suggests that perfectionism is what Alfred Adler called a lifestyle, which includes patterns of behavior linked to often subconscious goals, typically ingrained in us by the time we're four or maybe even five years old. If perfectionism is a lifestyle linked to our natural birth, then good news, holiness, is the lifestyle linked to our new birth. A few questions to think of while we get ready for this little interlude. Do you consider yourself to be a perfectionist? Now, for the really honest question, do others consider you to be a perfectionist? Do you consider perfectionism a negative trait? And when, if at any time, does perfectionism become unhealthy? Give you a few seconds to think about that, because we're going to hear more about that right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast. Brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. Happy to have you with me. My name is LJ Harry. I'm your host, and you're listening to the God's Word for Life companion podcast. Today's rousing episode continues our series about God's holiness 
and ours, and it is entitled Empowered by the Spirit to be Holy. And it is born out of 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 through 24. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Now, let me say this real quick, quick commercial. There is a great brand new podcast by Leanne Alexander called Holiness. It is W-H-O-L-Y-N-E-S-S. And the idea is that holiness and wholeness go hand in hand. So you can find that on their podcast platforms. Clearly, you're a podcast listener, so that's a great new podcast for you to enjoy. And we're back. And we are back at Acts chapter 15, where we arrive at what appears to be a watershed moment for the early apostolic church. The Gentiles were in. They were equal members right alongside Jewish believers. They were filled with the Spirit just like the Jews were filled with the Spirit. But that point of view is overly simplistic. It's very easy to forget that just maybe a decade earlier, the Jerusalem church had already considered the matter of Gentile inclusion after miraculously God filled Cornelius' household with the Spirit. And that was a centurion, a Roman centurion in his household. That was a major surprise for Simon Peter and all the Jews who were with him. The church brought Peter, called him on the carpet, if you will, and basically told him, you need to explain yourself, bub. You need to defend what you have done. You went into a Gentile's house. You ate with them. How dare you? Oh, it's, That always sounds a little more intimidating when you do it with an accent. It was a, a clear violation of the Mosaic law. You don't do that. But Simon Peter said, yeah, but you guys weren't there. I was there. I watched as God filled them with the Spirit in his living room, just like he filled us with the Spirit in the upper room. I'm telling you, they got the same Holy Ghost we got. And thankfully, Scripture says when they heard him and his testimony, they held their peace. They glorified God, and they testified that God has also given to the Gentiles repentance unto life. For all intents and purposes, that was settled. No reason to require the Jews to observe Torah Now they had been included in the family of God through the gospel. The fact makes the actions of these visitors to Antioch so problematic because it appears there's now been a reversal on what was already decided. And they were advocating that all the Gentile converts would be circumcised according to the law of Moses. Really, they're actually arguing, we need to make those Gentiles obey the Mosaic law. Now, the second and much larger problem Was this Gentile conversion really positioned Christianity as just another sect of Judaism, like the Sadducees or the Pharisees? There would be the Christians right next to them. But it was not that. This was a new covenant Jesus had made with his people. And it was not through the Mosaic law. It was through the gospel. But Paul, who himself was a former Pharisee, he argued The coming of Jesus Christ marked the completion, the fulfillment of the Jewish law, Romans 10, verse 4. And now salvation is no longer found through observing the law, but now it's found through faith in Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel. What was at stake here was the very nature of salvation. This is no small dissension and disputation. This is huge. Everything was on the line here. The account of the story makes clear that although the Judean ambassadors to Antioch were 
acting without the blessing of the Jerusalem church. They represented a very vocal faction, and it was led by converted Pharisees. Pharisees who were filled with the Spirit, born again, baptized in Jesus' name, but preached and taught and persuaded others that they need to observe the Mosaic law in order to be right with God. There was a sharp dissension, so much so that Acts 15 verse 6 records they went into closed session. This was this was a major watershed moment for the early apostolic church. When they came out of that room, when they come out of that room saying, yes, the Gentiles have the gospel and that is enough, or you know what? You're right. Every Gentile needs to be circumcised, obey the Jewish law. They need to observe all the Jewish feasts. They need to observe the Sabbath days. They need to observe all 613 of the Jewish laws. In the closed session, behind closed doors, thankfully, Luke is able to record this for us and kind of gives us a microphone and camera into that room. Peter rose to speak for the last time in the book of Acts. This was his last message. First, it was God. It was not Peter who initiated that mission of Cornelius' household. (laughs) I promise you, Peter was not like, you know, what am I going to do today? Oh, I have an idea. I'm going to go to a Gentile's house. In fact, let's raise the risk level a little bit. I'm going to go to a Roman centurion's house whose buddies just crucified Jesus and preach Jesus to him, the same Jesus that his bosses are saying, we stole his body. That's a great idea. It did not happen. God had to get Peter's attention. And at first, Peter said, I don't think this is a good idea. And the Lord said, yeah, but Cornelius has been praying and he's seeking me and he needs to hear the gospel. And you, Simon Peter, are going to preach him the gospel. In his commentary on the book of Acts, David Williams points out that this phrase was something of a signature Petrine phrase in Acts. That just means it was something that we read from Simon Peter. In those other contexts, it was used to introduce quotations or allusions to some of the writings of David and the book of Psalms and some of the prophets. Well, notably, it's referring here to Peter's own words, clearly equating the authority of the gospel he proclaimed to Cornelius with the authority of the Old Testament. Peter's second point in this closed session was that the outpouring of the Spirit was the positive evidence that the Gentiles had truly believed. This selfsame evidence convinced the original council in Acts 11. God poured out his Spirit. That means God has purified, sanctified the Gentiles' hearts by faith. And through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter said, we will be saved even as they. You need to see that clever twist. Peter had faith that his present Jewish audience could be saved just like the Gentiles. Peter, in this place, made the Gentiles the template, not the Jews. That's powerful. And most pertinent to this present issue was to allay the unspoken concern about uncircumcised and non-observant Gentiles introducing some kind of unholy impurity into the community of believers. They're not going to make these Jewish Christians unholy or impure just because they don't observe the Jewish law. Not going to happen. They have the same spirit, were baptized in the same name of Jesus Christ, just like the Jews. But Peter said, hey, good news, guys. Every one of you in this room, every one of us Jews, we can be saved just like they were. That's amazing. So here's another question. If you are a convert to Pentecost... You're brand new, and you're like, wow, this is amazing, but woo, different. 
Recall your own journey into holiness. Was that an easy path or a difficult one? And in what ways did the Spirit work on you to make you receptive and obedient to biblical teachings about holiness, living a holy life? Now Peter's done. He told his testimony, what God had done for the Gentiles. Now he's finished. And Peter's testimony was critical. He was basically the key eyewitness for the gospel. But James, he held a crucial position of authority within the council. It Likely, he was the pastor of the Jerusalem church. So if anybody is going to want to make the Jews happy and want to appease them by even asking the Gentiles to go a little further than they had already gone by obeying the gospel, you would think James would be the man. You know what, guys? I get it. I thank God that he filled them with the Holy Ghost just like us, and they were baptized just like us, and we were just like they. But you know what? Let's just try to bridge the gap a little bit. Let's meet in the middle. Let's just have the men to be circumcised. Let's just make sure or that they observe the Jewish feasts or that they observe a seventh-day Sabbath. Whatever it is, let's just try to make somebody happy. Let's bring them together. But James was more concerned about obeying Jesus in pleasing the Jewish Christians. And James wholeheartedly endorsed Peter's perspective that the Gentiles were truly and fully born again. And he even alluded to the testimony of Amos in Amos 9, verse 11 through 12, which envisioned a restored Israel that included non-Israelites as part of the coming kingdom of God. But there was no mention of circumcision or Torah observance to require them to be able to enter. To add the yoke, which was Peter's term, of Torah to these believers would have been unnecessarily troubling them. And Pastor James argued that since the Spirit was already active in their lives, God had achieved the same ends that Torah observant was ideally aimed to achieve. One final point. The guidelines James suggested for Gentile converts should not be seen as backtracking on the claim that they were sanctified by God's Spirit. The guidelines given, they were aimed at maintaining fellowship in the church, not maintaining the Gentiles' saved status. This was not James saying, yes, all they need to do is obey the gospel, respond rightly to the gospel. But you know what? We're also going to make them do this and this and this and this. That had nothing to do with their salvation. It had to do with their fellowship. They knew Gentiles were going to be spending time with Jewish Christians. They knew Gentiles were going to be hanging out in the homes of Jewish Christians. And James said in order to do that, some of these Jewish Christians still have convictions against meat offered to idols and things strangled from the Jewish law, Leviticus 17 through 18. So in order to keep fellowship, just abstain from those things. There were four things they had to abstain from. One, sexual immorality. Two, meats offered to idols. Three, things strangled. And four, blood. Things that were that still had the blood in them. Meat that still had the blood in them. So if all of you medium rare fans or rare fans, or I even heard a new term this week called blue, which meant right below rare. Sorry. James would say, if you're going to go to a Jew's house, a Jewish Christian, you need to abstain from that so as not to offend them. It wasn't a salvation issue. It was a fellowship issue. Now, the Pharisee faction in the Jerusalem church wrongly understood the means of the believer's sanctification. They still thought it was all about the law. 
They thought it was all about those 613 commands. And ultimately, it led them to preach a works-based view of salvation. That basically they were asserting, I am saved because I have made myself holy. Rather than acknowledging and admitting, I have been made holy because I have been saved. And there's a major difference. I don't live holy so Jesus will save me. I live holy because Jesus has saved me. Let's be very careful not to adopt a similar mistaken view today where we teach our children or our young people, hey, God wants you to live holy. If you're going to live holy, God will save you. No, let's teach them. God wants to save you. And when he saves you, he calls you to this beautiful life of holiness. It's really that he fills us with his Holy Spirit and then gives us his power to live holy unto him. Now, in his writings, Paul, let's bring him into this, he carefully paralleled the believer's experience of salvation with the saving work of Jesus as encapsulated in what he called the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. When Jesus poured out his spirit that he described to Nicodemus as a spiritual rebirth, Paul equated that with a resurrection. For that metaphor to work, it's important to note resurrection is not the same as revivification. To be revived is to be brought back to life, to have our death reversed, if you will. But to be resurrected is to be given new life on the other side of death. Someone who is merely revived, well, they know that there will come a day when they will die, and this time it will be for good. But somebody who has been resurrected never has to face death again. This resurrection, this life, is gifted to all believers in Jesus who have received the gift of his Holy Spirit. This life bears no connection to the previous life. It is a new kind of life, a whole different order of living. It is not me 2.0. We are recreated, made brand new, new creatures in Christ Jesus. In Romans 6, Paul says the body of sin has been destroyed in our baptism. So we should not serve sin any longer. We have been freed, freed from its power. And sure, Christians still sin, but we no longer live under sin's dominion. Through the Holy Ghost, we have power to resist and defeat sinful strongholds in our lives. We're not powerless anymore. We don't have to fall prey to temptation any longer. We have been filled with his Spirit and baptized in Jesus' name. Paul finally challenged his Roman hearers, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Romans 6 verse 13. Sanctification is not our achievement for God. It is God's achievement in us. He is making us holy. The only work we do is surrender. Another question. How have you experienced the Holy Spirit helping you to live a transformed life in this present world? Now, the power of the Spirit is why the Apostle Paul could make what seems to be an outrageous claim to the Thessalonian church that God would sanctify them wholly, completely, preserving them blameless until Jesus returns. That just sounds downright impossible, even arrogant to our contemporary ears. And sometimes we kind of go off the rails with the concept that we are separated into three elements, a body, a soul, and a spirit. That wasn't Paul's intention here. 
New Testament passages seem to assert there are only two separable elements, the soul and the body. And as fascinating as beneficial those discussions are, that's probably adventures in missing the point. Paul's emphasis on sanctification simply means it impacts every domain of human life, the material and the immaterial, the body and the spirit, or the soul, the soul and the spirit. And the prescribed level of conduct was humanly impossible. Absolutely, be patient toward all men. Oh, good luck. Paul, if you've never dealt with road rage before, ever follow that which is good. Pray without ceasing. Okay, Paul. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And Paul's ultimate point was the Spirit is the source of power that alone would enable them to live in this way. The God who called us to holiness is the God who gives us power to live holy. Another question, the penultimate question. If it is not possible for a Christian to live a sinless life, how should we interpret these passages like 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 22? Before we can ever commit to living holy, walking in holiness, we must commit first to walking in the Spirit. A lifestyle of holiness divorced from the inner working of God's Spirit is nothing more than pursuing the life of self-righteousness, which will only lead to arrogance and despair, or worse, We end up in the quagmire of Acts 15 where we fail to recognize God's Spirit in the lives of our brothers and sisters because they don't follow our rules. We can't impose some kind of uniformity rather than live in a unity that is birthed in love and mutual care. Not only is our walk with God imperiled by our pride, but the health of the church is damaged. And ultimately, her witness to the transforming power of the gospel is negated before an ever-watching world. And we wrap this up. It's easy to feel that God's love for us is directly attached to how well we behave. And we completely forget God extends love to sinners. We're so worried by Paul's expectation to live blameless until Jesus returns that we forget to read the very next sentence. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. The two key differences between this cultural push for perfection and the biblical call for holiness is perfection is understood as our work. But holiness is and always will be God's work on our behalf. Perfection places the focus on us. Holiness shifts the focus to God. The second major difference is perfection emphasizes actions, but holiness emphasizes character. Don't forget the fundamental essence of holy living is found in manifesting the life of the fruit of the Spirit, which are all qualities of Christian character. It's not specific actions. It's character. One problem with centering our focus on action is what could be called the slide toward minimum requirements. If I'm constantly concerned, did I do enough? Did I do it right? I may be fixated on just enough and just enough to be right. But holiness is simply what happens as we grow closer to God and to our brothers and sisters in church. It's not the pursuit of perfection, but it is the perfection of pursuit. Pursue God. Pursue relationship. Pursue love. Replace try with rely. Replace do the next right thing with walk in the Spirit. Replace achieve with attempt. Drawing closer to God moves us away from the world and its influences. Temptations will lose their grip, and wrong attitudes finally can be identified and rejected. Will you be perfect? 
No, but you will be holy. Last question. Why do you think self-condemnation and self-comparison are so damaging to our pursuit of holiness? And with that, we pray. I would like us to pray first for thankfulness to God for continuing to work on us to remake us in his image. He's so faithful. And for God to make us better listeners to others' testimonies so we can make better connections with people who are truly seeking him. Would you pray that with me right now? God, I thank you. You never fail to work on us. You are always working on us. And I thank you for that. Faithful are you who will do this. I call on you today and I ask you to help us. Help us to listen to others' testimonies and what you're doing in their lives and how you're ministering to them and how we can minister to them and bless them. I pray, Jesus, help us to live holy. Help us not to try to live self-righteous or braggadociously or arrogantly, but holy. Help us, Lord, to be holy as you are holy through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much, God's Word for Life listeners. Be sure to subscribe, follow, like, share, notify. That way you'll never miss an episode. And all of those you care about and love, they will never have to miss an episode either of the God's Word for Life podcast. Head over to PentecostalPublishing.com. Some wonderful resources there, including all the God's Word for Life curriculum. It's all there for children, youth, and adults. You can get leader guide, daily devotional guide, resource kits. All of that is right there on PentecostalPublishing.com. And if you use promo code GWFL10, you can save 10% off your entire order the first time you use that promo code. It is the most wonderful time of the year. And that means next week's episode is all about Christmas. It is entitled The Gift of Worship, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you next week. And always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.